Well, hello, Heritage. I want to welcome all of you at all of our locations, including those online, to week three of Heroes. From ordinary to extraordinary, from commonplace to exceptional, God has made us for more. And he's invited us into a grand adventure, one where he wants to overcome the impossibilities of our lives. Because we're not made for the ordinary, we're made for the extraordinary. And we've been looking at a particular journey that helps us live fully into that reality. And it really starts with our understanding that, that we are a physical being, with, but we are also spiritual. It starts in the natural and it leads to the supernatural. And so we start here in the context of what is the natural world, the physical world, and it starts with the first step of what we know. When we, when we know who God is, when we understand what he's asking of us, that there is a call to an adventure, once we know that, then we can actually join him in that journey where we cross from the natural to the supernatural. At that point, we enter into the fight. And the fight is the place where there are challenges, there are temptations, there are obstacles, there are pressures, there's an enemy. But as long as we remain faithful, as long as we persist, as long as we continue to keep our eyes fixed on him, then we get to the point where we can die to self and we can yield. And when we yield to him in our dependence upon him, then he transforms us and we're never the same. And then he positions us to go back into the places that he leads us to live. But we're never the same. We're, we no longer live the same. We're transformed. We're different. It's where the natural and the supernatural have collided. And when we don't live into this journey, then God isn't able to do all that he wants to do in and through us. Because this is the context by which life is lived with him. And if we don't know that, then we end up misinterpreting the things that happen to us or around us. And honestly, that is a tragic thing. If we did that, that is a tragedy in our lives. Because God wants to do great things in and through you. He wants to do great things in and through all of you. Through all of us. We're not made for the ordinary. We're made for the extraordinary. And so, two weeks ago, we started this journey by looking at a man named Nathaniel, who was a follower, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And we looked at how he started to move from ordinary to extraordinary as he followed Jesus. And then last week, we looked at Jonathan and his armor bearer in this epic moment where they stepped into a battle and God did this beautiful, victorious thing because they moved from ordinary to extraordinary and what they knew of him. And both of those individuals continue to help us understand that life is not a problem to be solved. It is an adventure to be lived. And if you've missed either one of those first two moments in our series, you can find them online. But, but today, we're actually stepping in to look at another hero, another person out of Scripture, and that's the man, Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Now, many people believe that Nehemiah was one of the shortest guys in the Bible. I don't know if you knew that. I, mean, I don't know if you know why they think that. It's because of his name. He was Nehemiah. Okay, but obviously that's not true. That's a misnomer. That's not true. You don't even say his name that way. A lot of people think the shortest man in the Bible was Zacchaeus, but there was actually somebody shorter than him. It was one of the three friends that showed up to talk to Job. His name was Bildad, the shoe height. Shoe height? That's pretty small. Hang with me. Hang with me. He wasn't the smallest person in the Bible. The fact that the smallest person in the Bible was the Philippian jailer who was so small he fell asleep on his watch. <laughs> Gotta be really small to fall asleep on your watch. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. 
Look, if we're, if we're going to live an extraordinary life, not an ordinary one, we need to be in Scripture. We, we, we go to God's Word to get answers in life. And if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to grab it, turn or click to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. If you're cruising through, you hit the Samuels, you hit the Kings and the Chronicles, you hit Ezra, Nehemiah. We're in Nehemiah. If you get to Esther, Job, and Psalms too far, we're in Nehemiah. And as you're turning there, I want to just give a little bit of history and context around Nehemiah's journey. And I don't really know how much you know about Nehemiah's journey, uh, but here's what I want to do today. I actually want to go pretty deep and detailed in some of the history and context around it. So just hang with me. We're going to dive down deep in that because this story is compelling and applicable to us in so many ways. So we're going to go deep into the context, and then I want to come out of that, go back to Nehemiah's life, and I want to kind of pull it apart a bit, grab a hold of what we can to understand what we can do going forward as we seek to live an extraordinary life in Jesus. So we're going to go through a bunch of information. We're going to walk down through key, key points in that journey, but I want you to just understand and be in my headspace as we do that. So here's what I want to do first. I want to just back up to some of that historical context of, of Nehemiah's life. See, the, the journey and story of Nehemiah takes place uh, some thousand years before, or excuse me, after Moses, and about some 400 years before Jesus Christ. So Nehemiah is, a, is working and living in, a, in the Persian empire, but he's not a Persian. He's Jewish. He is a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And now you may have heard different terms thrown around a bit in the church where you hear about like Hebrews, and, and you hear the term uh, Jews, and you hear the term Israel. Now, they're often used as synonyms, and they're really connected, they're intertwined, but there are some nuances to these words. In fact, when we're talking about descendants of Abraham, that's where the term Hebrews came from, people who were descendants of Abraham. When we talk about Israelites, we're really talking about people who have descended from Jacob, because Jacob was given a new name by God, and it was what? It was Israel. But when we start talking about Jews, we're really talking about a people group out of Judah. And we're picking up this story at a point where the, the people of God were no longer united. Like last week, we looked at Jonathan and what happened there. That was happening in a united kingdom where, where Saul was king. And that, the, the people of God were united for about 120 years. They had three primary leaders during that time. It was Saul, David, and Solomon. They each led for about 40 years. But after that time period, the, the, the people were divided. And, and then they were divided into the north and the south. It was Israel in the north, it was Judah in the south. Israel had 10 tribes in the north, and Judah had two tribes in the south. In that, in that divided kingdom period, there are about 19 kings who reigned in Israel, and there are about 20 kings who reigned in Judah. Now, of all of those kings, and all the period of the divided kingdom period, there were... <laughs> zero kings who were good and God-honoring in Israel. And Judah didn't do much better because there were only eight good and God-honoring leaders. Now, there's a lot of implications that came out of that. A lot of things happened because of that reality, but two of the most significant things that happened because of how they functioned in that divided kingdom were that about 200 years, actually 208 years into the divided kingdom, in, in the year 722, Assyria came into Israel and just scattered them, just obliterated them. And then about 136 years later after that, the Babylonians came into Judah and they grabbed a hold of the people of Judah 
and they exiled them, and they took them into Babylon. And, and, and this is where we find the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and even the story of Esther, who, who she was queen in a Persian court. And you're like, well, Persia? How, how do we get Persia into this equation? Well, the deal is that in 539 B.C., the Persians took over from the Babylonians, and they were in charge. So this is a mess. This is not God's plan. God wanted to be king over Israel. He acquiesced and let them have a human king. It went well for a period of time with hardships, but then it just totally blew up in the depravity of man. This is a mess. But what God started to do as the Persians took power is he began to restore his people back into the land. In fact, it was about 70 years that Jerusalem, which was in the southern kingdom, had been just like a ghost town. But the Persians, when they took over, said, let's start sending these people back. And it actually happened in three specific main waves. The first return was led by a man named Zerubbabel. I'm not, I'm saying that properly, Zerubbabel. And he rebuilt the temple. His focus was on rebuilding the temple. The second was led by a man named Ezra, who really focused on gathering the people together. And these were really good things. It was, it was great that this was happening. It was part of what God wanted to see and do, but there were still challenges in this because the city didn't have the security that it needed not to be attacked, exploited, or victimized. It, it didn't have a wall. And, and this is actually where Nehemiah comes in. Because I said Nehemiah, he was, he was working and living in Persia, but he was not Persian, he was Jewish. And he was actually working for King Artaxerxes as a cupbearer. Now, the job of cupbearer wasn't just to stand next to the king and hold a cup until he was thirsty. The, the job of cupbearer was to defend and protect the king and die for the king by taste-testing the food and tasting and drinking the drink to make sure it wasn't poisoned. So if Nehemiah ate and drank the food that the king was going to eat and he lived, the king would eat it. If he died, okay, good job, Nehemiah, thank you. It was really an interesting job, strange job. It kind of reminds me of training I went to in the army. I actually went to the training the army has. It's kind of like secret service training. It's called protective services. And so we learned to like evasively drive and ram cars and disarm people and do security cordons. It's a really cool, really cool course. It was called Protective Services, but we as students, we call it, called it Bullet Catching 101. <laughs> yeah, because really that's what it was about, protecting, defending a leader. And in the same way the cupbearer, that was that role, and any leader and king would appreciate this role. The king valued this role, and it positioned Nehemiah with a unique relationship with him. So here's what happens. Some of Nehemiah's brethren from Judah come, and they start to share with him what's been happening in his homeland. And when they do that, it actually positions Nehemiah to begin to walk this journey, the hero's journey. Now, Nehemiah is one of my favorite figures in Scripture. Here's a guy who had prominence and, and was in, in proximity to wealth and had comfort, and he leaves all that for the welfare of a people in a city. He was a statesman, he was an engineer, but he was a warrior. He, he wore weapons and tools on his belt. And, as, and he fought people who opposed him, who wanted to stop the work that God called him to, but also wanted to hurt the city and the people that he loved. But he wasn't just a warrior, he was a leader, and he was a selfless leader. And there was even moments where he went out and surveyed the city at night, and he prayed over the city. Now, now I find this very interesting. I don't know if you see this with me or not, but Here's Nehemiah who leaves a place of prominence and, and proximity to wealth to go and seek the welfare of a people in a city. He wears weapons and tools on his belt. He patrols the city at night. Is this sounding familiar to you guys at all? 
like anybody else we might know? I believe this sounds very familiar to somebody we also have talked about in this hero's journey. I'm not saying they're the same person. I'm just saying there's an awful lot of similarities between Nehemiah and another hero we know of. Okay, with me? All right, let's get back to the real business at hand. Hopefully by now you're at Nehemiah chapter 1 with me in your scriptures, and your device. If not, it's going to be on the screen. It's also in your sermon note guide. So let's kind of walk through Nehemiah chapter 1, starting with verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So let me just give you a little context about what's happening here. Because a city without any kind of wall system really was just totally defenseless, open and vulnerable to all of its enemies, any and all. They had no defense, they had no protection. And it's no wonder that Han and I would say, Han and I would say that they were in trouble and disgrace. It makes complete sense. Living in a city without a wall created stress and tension, and the people never really knew who or when somebody might attack. And that means that they could rebuild the temple, but they couldn't make it beautiful because anything of value would have been, would have been taken. It, it means that they would have struggled with some level of fear constantly. It would have meant that they, they would have had this sense of dignity diminished in their life because they were constantly exposed to the possibility of being attacked. That had to be hard. Just think of a time when you've ever come home or woken up in the morning and you've realized that your garage door has been open or your front door has been unlocked. There's this quickening of, oh no, what happened? It's kind of like that, only way worse. Way worse. And, and after unsuccessfully trying to repair that wall for years that nobody thought it was possible. They had given up. They thought this was an impossibility that could not be overcome. And so the walls laid in ruin and the people continued to remain in trouble for years. In fact, the people had been back in the city for nearly 100 years, struggling in that paradigm. And, and that's sad to me because they were just living as survivors. And God made them for more than that. God made us for more than that. He doesn't just want us to be merely survivors. He wants us to live as conquerors and not just conquerors. He wants us to live as more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. That's why that any, when, any, when any great work of God, when, when he wants to begin something, any great work of God starts with a great work in us. Any great work that God wants to start, he first does a great work in us to facilitate that. Let me unpack that for just a moment. When he wants to do something big, he's going to first work in his people. And God wanted to work through Nehemiah to do a great work to rectify the problem that was happening within a city and the people that he loved. But first, God wanted to do something in Nehemiah. He wanted to do something in him. He wanted him to walk the hero's journey. And so this conversation that he has with Han and I at this point began a four-month process we just read that it was in the month of Kislev. We're going to find out in chapter 2 that it starts again in the month of Nisan. And there's a four-month period. So four months pass before God opens any doors. Four months. 
Now, I don't know what you might be waiting for right now in your life. I don't know what God has stirred in your heart that he's not yet brought about. I don't know what thing is, what challenge or wrong you want to fix. But wait for his timing. Because God uses time to prepare people and places. Wait for his timing. Nehemiah's four-month process, this burden of sadness upon him, prepared him to speak and lead and pray in ways that changed everything, especially how he walked the hero's journey. So let's move on into chapter 2, because we pick up chapter 2, understanding just a little bit more in this journey. But let me, before I do that, I want to just give you a quote that I think summarizes the idea of who Nehemiah becomes in this process. See, I understand that God may be allowing you to endure some difficulty, some hardship. He may be having you wait for a period of time. There may be a burden of sadness upon you to prepare you for a greater work. Let him do it. Let him do it. It was D.L. Moody who said this. He said, for every great movement of God can be traced back to a single praying, kneeling figure. This is true because any great work of God starts in a, with a great work in us. So let's get back to Nehemiah's journey. He knew who God was. He knew God called him to this thing. He joined God by praying and fasting, chasing hard after God. And so in chapter 2, this is where we pick up. In the month of Nisan, four months later, four months later, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Let me hold there. That's his job, right? Take the wine, try it. Did you live? Yes. Okay, thank you. I will drink it now. I had not been sad in in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid. Do you know why he was afraid? Do you understand why he had fear at this moment? It's because he was committing a crime in the presence of a king. He was committing a capital offense. It was illegal to be sad or depressed in the presence of a Persian king. And it was punishable by death. So here's Nehemiah, four months of this burden, having a love and a care for a people and a place, knowing that if he exposed that at some place at a certain time, that it could cost him everything. I get, I get why he was afraid. I understand that. But listen, Nehemiah had a habit and a practice that allowed him to navigate that reality. Here's what Nehemiah did. Anytime he came across a problem, he prayed. He encountered a problem, he prayed. He'd say, hey, there's a problem. He'd say, well, I'm going to pray. Problem, pray. Problem, pray. Problem, pray. That's a great habit and practice that we should all consider embracing. Because the reality is that prayer influences things more than any other thing we can make or do. Prayer has greater influence than the things that we often invest in. And prayer influenced this conversation. Let me show you how as we continue on in the passage. But I said to the king... May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Now, hold, let's hold right there before we go to the next part. What is about to happen is the key moment, the defining moment that will set the trajectory, trajectory for nearly everything that happens next. What Nehemiah does will define the journey moving forward. So here's what he does. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. In the middle of the conversation, in the midst of the pressure and the reality that I can be killed, in the moment, 
He continued to seek and depend on God. He said, I prayed to the God of heaven. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Now, to understand the realities of this, we need to know some, a couple things. One, Nehemiah knew what the problem was. He had the burden. God had revealed to him and he understood what the situation was and it rocked his world. But, but instead of complaining, instead of wallowing in self-pity, he took action and he prayed. He prayed before he conversed. Pray, then have conversation. That's, that's huge. If, if we could be a people who pray and then have conversation, it changes everything. Because prayer influences conversations more than words. What we do in our prayer closet, what we do on our knees, what we do in conversation with the Father, that influences more in conversation than words. Because of his power at work in this world, prayer influences things more than any other investment. And and Nehemiah knew God wanted something different than what was. He wanted the walls rebuilt, a wrong to be righted. He wanted uh, an injustice to be stopped. And so Nehemiah prayed. He prayed and fasted alone. He prayed before conversation. He prayed in conversation. And the key is, he didn't start by talking with other people about what to do, which is what many of us do. He, he didn't even develop a plan about what he could accomplish if he could get enough people to join in. No, what he did was he laid hold of God. He grabbed hold of God, and he knew it started with prayer, and he chased the power and the presence of God. And the result of that was something only God could bring about. Because what the king does, the king responds and gives permission to Nehemiah to go. But not just gives permission, he gives him royal papers, he sends army officers with him, and he sends a cavalry with him. Now, that's not just a big deal, that's a ginormous deal. It's huge. Beyond the fact that he wasn't killed for committing a capital offense in front of the king, beyond the fact that he was granted such favor with the king to not only have permission but to have provision, beyond all that, what is, what is most striking to me, what is most significant here, and I believe in the context of any hero journey, is that God was bringing Nehemiah to a place of greater dependence. A place of greater dependence where he could not only just join, but he would fight depending on God. He would yield and die to self and so that God could bring the results that God wanted to bring through him. And here's the kicker of this process. Here's the reality of what God does, is that God will often limit results to teach us dependence. Our God will limit results to teach us what? Dependence. When we don't know that, we misinterpret things. Because God will limit fruit in our lives to teach us dependence. He he will do it to reveal the level of our dependence. And it was this dependence developed in Nehemiah's journey that positioned him to later overcome obstacles, to deal with challenges, and to handle troublemakers like Sanabalat and Tobiah. I mean, these were two knuckleheads who represented a group of people who repeatedly messed with Nehemiah and the project. They wrote letters in opposition. They, they slandered him, accused him of things. They tried to trick him. But again, when we live in a place of dependence in the midst of the fight and the struggle, it's okay. It's okay when people do those things around us and to us. Here's what Nehemiah does. He responds in chapter 2, verse 20 to these guys this way. He said, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. So where's his dependence? On who? It's on God. The God of heaven will give us success. 
And then he says, he, we his, we his, again, dependents, his servants will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Being in the place of dependency allows us to work and move in the process in a way that God can bless, that he can empower. See, here's the thing. Nehemiah understood and knew a couple things. That because he knew who God was and he knew his need to depend on God and he knew that he was his servant and God would bring success, what ended up happening is that the Nehemiah knew, once he understood what God was asking, that he had to risk. And he had to risk beyond recovery, but not beyond God's cover. He wasn't chasing something he wanted to do. He was chasing the heart of God. And so he had to risk beyond the point that it was no longer about him, but not beyond God's cover. So he risked. When a leader does that, when we do that, when we follow God, God says, there's what I want you to do. That big, hairy, audacious goal, that thing that I'm asking you to step out in faith in. When that happens, a desperation falls on us as people. There's a heaviness. There's a weight to it. And in that desperation, we can want to push that onto people. We can want to say, I need you to do this, and I need you to do this, and hey, come alongside of me. And we start to depend on people, and we put that, 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 that desperation on people. But that's not where God wants us to do that. In fact, what God wants us to do is to release people from the desperation we feel in the midst of the fight. To release that. Don't put that on people. What he wants us to do is still, instead, is to refuse to let go of him. To lay hold of God and say, God, I'm going to depend on you. I'm going to hold to you, and I'm going to stay here until you give me peace. I refuse to let go. Demonstrating that great dependence. This is where God wants us to live and rest. This is where he wants us to function. Because when we do that, then we're yielding to him. He's, then we can, re, we can remain in that posture no matter what happens. And then he ultimately brings about the results that he wants to see. This, this is the journey that Nehemiah was on. This is the journey that he's asking all of us to be on. That we would remain, that we would risk beyond recovery, we'd release people from the desperation we feel, we would refuse to let go, we would remain in context and dependence on God, and that He can bring the results out of that in and through us and what He's asking us to do. Listen, extraordinary people depend on an extraordinary God. And Nehemiah did that. And so through him, God corrected a problem that had been there for 150 years. And here's what's fascinating to me. It took 52 days to rebuild the wall. 52 days to do what couldn't have been done, had failed to be done in 150 years. 52 days. God did something that had failed before because he had someone willing to walk the journey with him. Risking and releasing, refusing and remaining, and then having the results. Look, in chapter 1, Nehemiah could have chosen comfort and the familiar. He could have said, look, fellas, thanks for giving me the news. I feel bad for you. I'll pray for you. Have a good trip home. But he didn't. It, it, it moved him. He sought God. He prayed and he fasted and he continued to wait on God until the king asked the question. And then he had the courage to declare the need and to identify himself as part of the solution. And too many of us want someone else to go to fix what's broken to fight the battle, to go and serve. When God is waiting on us, when, when others are waiting on us, maybe the question that we can each ask ourselves today is, who is waiting on you? Who is waiting on you? The, need you to act, need you to pray, need you to speak, need you to come and help. Who is waiting on you? God often seeks to call out heroes from unlikely places in unexpected ways. 
Beth shared with me an article that we came across this week about a man who, who spends his days in his day job, but then spends his night helping out those in need, making sure they don't go hungry. He's 20 years old. He lives in Birmingham, England. He works at his day job, but then he spends his, night, his nights feeding the homeless. Now, you may not think that's all that unusual or unexpected, but, but he does it wearing a Spider-Man costume. Yeah, let me, let me show you a picture of him. Here he is right there. He, he, his name, he's known as Birmingham Spider-Man. And he goes out and he loves and serves the homeless of Birmingham. And he does it in a Spider-Man costume, not to be silly, but to be anonymous. Because he has no other agenda except to love and care and to serve. And he wants to inspire others to do the same. Who's waiting on you? Who's waiting on you to move, to act, to pray, to come and help? It, it can come from unlikely places. It may be those in need who need you to join alongside of them. It may be God is waiting on you to join him in relationship. It may be the, actually the opposition is waiting for you to quit because you're about ready to quit and they want you to quit and join them. Who's waiting for you to join? Who's waiting on you? Look, let's, let's move this to the so what reality for us. God has placed us in cities without walls. He's placed us in locations marked by ruins. God has positioned us individually and as a church in the Quad Cities. Not just simply to exist, but to rebuild the walls and to restore what's been lost. There is trouble and disgrace in our communities. There's exploitation of children. There's domestic violence. There's gang violence. We live in cities that desperately need a great work of God. And there are two things that I believe we need to consider as we step out of Nehemiah's journey. The first is that to join always requires a fight. It always requires a readiness to fight. A readiness to fight. When we move through the hero's journey, when we cross from the natural to the supernatural, there will always be a fight. It's either external or internal. It, it, within ourselves even. It, it could be subtle or it could be overt. It could be with others or for others. And in Nehemiah's story, they rebuilt the wall. They were side by side as they did that. Each family was assigned a section of the wall, but they did it ready to fight. They did it while they were armed. In fact, if we look in chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, it says, those who, who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. When, when we know and join, we live ready to fight together, more together than we are apart. We don't just join God's great work and arrive simply at the destination and like, oh, I, yeah, I'm, I believe in you, God, I follow you, okay, we're there. No, no. When we join, we become part of something much bigger than ourselves. It's something where we can end the violence and oppression and exploitation of children and women in our cities. It's the kind of thing where we can care for the hundreds of homeless children who live in the west end of Davenport. It's the kind of thing where we can assist elementary students who struggle with mastery of skills, which makes the schoolwork very difficult, and so the dropout rate is high, and it sets a trajectory for their lives at a much lesser into a much lesser place than what God intended for them when he made them to live an extraordinary life. This journey that we're talking about, this hero's journey is not for the faint of heart. It's not for the half committed. 
The work of God is bold and transforming. And there will always be a fight to see it advance. Always be a fight. Yet we serve a God who changes the hearts of kings. He removes impossibilities and obstacles. It's true in building a wall. It's true in building relationships. It's true in even preserving a marriage. We have to fight for it. Side by side, bringing others into that journey. In fact, I just want to take a moment to remind you of an upcoming marriage enrichment event. Uh, on April 10th, right here at Rock Island from 7 to 9, we're going to host an event with Emerson Egrich, the author of Love and Respect. And I want you to come with your spouse, those of you that are married, to, to be part of understanding what it looks like to fight for your marriage. This is so important for us. Marriage is so important in the context of our church that we are actually sending our entire staff and their spouses to be part of this. So we're going to be there, and I invite you to come be part of it with us. Come and fight for that area of the wall in your life. Fight for your marriage. Because to join always requires a readiness to fight, whether it's marriage or in life. And that reality affirms the second thing we're going to wrap up with today, and it's that prayer is the most important conversation of the day. The second thing that we can pull out of Nehemiah's story that I want us to look at is the prayer is the most important conversation of the day. It only took 52 days to finish building the wall. 52. Now, you may think that's because of leadership and hard work and good planning, and, and those things certainly had some role. But Nehemiah prayed for four months before he did any of those other things. So that 52-day project had a four-month foundation of prayer. And that changes things. Because prayer is essential to the extraordinary life. It, it frames and enhances what we know. It actually is the means by which we join. And it positions us for the fight. That's why God would, could say in Jeremiah 29, he said this, then you will call on me and come to me and I will listen to you, pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Prayer is the most important conversation of the day. Nehemiah had some very powerful practices in his life, and prayer was one of those. It moved the heart of a king, because ultimately God holds the hearts of kings in his hands. So who better to talk to about a problem than the one who does that? And that's in Proverbs 21, if you want to check that out. But if we don't pray, then we're exposed to the fight without power. We're powerless if we don't mobilize the power of God. And we mobilize his power through prayer. And, and he will bring about his will to pass through the prayers of his people. He says, I will listen to you. Who's waiting on you? It's interesting that there are no overt miracles recorded in Nehemiah. No, nobody is healed. Nobody is raised from the dead. In Nehemiah, God simply answers prayer by providing a leader with favor and strength and wisdom. And the work of God is done in the day-to-day -day grind of committed workers. Who is waiting on you? As we continue in our hero's journey, we'll dig further into what it looks like to navigate the fight portion of the process. But today, as we wrap up and step back into worship, we spend a moment in prayer. I want to encourage you, if you've never moved in knowing who God is, to joining Him in relationship through His Son, Jesus Christ, that you would consider doing that today. That on the back of your sermon note guide are some simple steps and an example prayer to begin the process of moving from ordinary to extraordinary, from the natural to the supernatural.
and enter into a grand adventure in relationship to God through the power at work of His Spirit in your life through Jesus Christ. If you've never made that decision, I want to encourage you to do that so you can step into the greater things God has for you. And if you've already made that decision, God is not yet done with you in walking through this journey. There is more to come. So continue to depend on Him in His strength, in His leading, because He is preparing you right now for something else He wants to do next. And if He's making you wait, let Him. Wait upon Him, depend on Him, be ready to join the fight. And each and every day, spend time before Him in prayer. And that will change the things that you see and experience in this journey like never before. So let's take a moment now and pray as we step back into worship. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to gather. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the story of Nehemiah. I thank you for your faithfulness in pursuing us. I thank you that you have a journey you invite us into, that there is, a, there is a battle to be fought, and we don't do that alone. And as we depend on you, you transform us, and you give us your power, and, and you bring results that we can never even ask, begin to imagine or dream of. And I pray that as my brothers and sisters continue to process who's waiting on them, maybe it's you, you're waiting on them to step into relationship with you. Maybe you're waiting on them to, to step out and meet the needs of the person you've already pointed to them, you've positioned in their life. Whatever and whoever is waiting on them in your purpose and plan, may they be ready to do that. So Father, in these next few moments, may you continue to speak as we, as we spend time in worship. May you continue to lead. I love you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.